given day, thousands of people around the world are working on behalf of Jewish and Israeli international development and humanitarian organizations, helping vulnerable populations in need. This week, as Jewish international development professionals gather in Washington, D.C., we're joined by Diona Ginsberg, CEO of Olam, and Tanya Merkis, CEO of the Society for International Development Israel, to help us see the world as they do, opportunities, challenges, and more. Don't push pause. You're listening to a very special episode of Jewish Insiders Podcast. And welcome back to Jewish Insiders Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Rich. Baruch Hashem. How are we you, my friend? We celebrated 75 years of Israel's existence, Israel at 75. And, you, know uh, I, you know what I love about Israel at 75? It's like three months worth of events, right? It's, it's actually 75 years worth of events. Uh, yeah, all, yeah. All wrapped it, up into one or two or three months, which is nice. I know. Nice. But it is nice because it goes on through June and then you get some stuff into the summer. So, but it's very exciting. And really well, a, shout out, a shout out to the Jewish Federation in Chicago. Uh, they're doing some big fireworks light show over Lake Michigan in June as part of the 75th. So you are right. This is sort of like this never ending 75th celebration. Which is fantastic. Well, it's, it's a, what a, what a time to be alive, right? I'd say so. One interesting uh, development as well, uh, while we, of course, watch uh, the unfolding of events uh, in Israel uh, on its borders, uh, operations to uh, confront Iranian proxies uh, on all of Israel's borders, uh, and uh, and we note uh, continued U.S. support, uh, Secretary Blinken uh, issuing a statement saying they stand by uh, Israel's security, ironclad commitment. Uh, so, so uh I will uh, give due there. Oh, Ambassador Nides. Yeah. Let's give a big shout out to Ambassador Nides recently announcing that he's going to be stepping down this summer. What a, a good guy, regardless of, of your, where you are on the politics. Tom Nides is like a mensch of a human being. And, you know, every time there was a terror attack on his watch, whether it was in the news or not, he showed up for that Shiva call and, and really – humanize the position of ambassador. And so call Hakavod to Tom for a, a, a job really well done in a complicated I agree. Time. I agree. And, and, and they'll face some criticism from some Israeli officials about meddling uh, in Israeli politics. I will say that he is a graceful meddler. He, he meddles with, with grace and dignity. Uh, so yes, call Hakavod uh, there. Uh, is Jared Bernstein on the short list? Should we put you on the shortlist? Um, good question. Good question. You know, uh, I I am always willing to take a call from from President Biden. Um, so, President Biden, if you're listening, I I am. We've just nominated you, Jewish uh, Insider well, exclusive, exclusive. Well, we really should have he, a pool of some type. Um, you know, to uh, on who the next U.S. ambassador to Israel is going to be. I saw there was some speculation today, uh, but really we should we should get some kind of a, a pool. And if there's going to be one before the midterms, right? Who knows if Republicans yeah. will uh, will play ball and allow one to get confirmed between now. Well, and it'll, it'll need to be somebody who has probably already been vetted and can can sail through a nomination with bipartisan like already support. been ambassador to Israel maybe somebody like oh, that Oh well well there that's a rumor that's a ru- I'm not confirming that rumor that's a rumor 
uh, a past guest, maybe on an early episode, you can check out our episode logs, go back to the very beginning. You'll, you'll see a name there. Uh, but one other development to note, obviously you've talked to me, you've heard me talk about Morningstar and their ESG ratings and BDS, the state of Florida, this has not gotten uh, widespread press coverage at all so far, sort of flown under the radar. The state of Florida has uh, sent to the governor's desk a bill to more explicitly make the state's anti-BDS law apply to Morningstar and its ESG ratings that are biased against Israeli companies using BDS criteria. So waiting which for is, Governor which is DeSantis great. to which sign is great. that law. You know, good, good for them, but I think probably people were quite uh, quite distracted by some of the other craziness that's going on in Florida these days where they're trying to cancel science and all that. But uh, I digress. I digress. Uh. <laughs> yes, yes. Obviously, uh, uh, we, we may have some disagreements there. Uh, yeah. But uh, I do like the weather and I do like the freedom. Uh, yes. But uh, let us let us get to our, uh, <laughs> our special guests uh, today. Jared, take it away. All right. Diona Ginsberg is the CEO of Olam, a network of 70 Jewish and Israeli organizations working in the fields of global service, international development, and humanitarian aid. Inspired by Jewish values and committed to high ethical standards, Olam convenes and mobilizes leaders and organizations to make a, take meaningful action in support of the world's most vulnerable people. And we have Tanya Murkies, the CEO of the Society for International Development, SID Israel, 20 years of experience in the fields of strategy, foreign policy, and public diplomacy. She, in her last role, was the executive director of Forum Devora, a nonprofit promoting gender equality in the fields of national security and foreign policy in Israel. Tanya and Diona, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much for having us. So first off, tell us about your respective organizations, SID Israel and Olam. Olam um, is a network of 71 self-identifying Jewish and or Israeli organizations that are working in the fields of international development, humanitarian aid, and global volunteering. And what we do is twofold. One is bring together practitioners across the Jewish world who are working in these fields to enable them to network, learn, share best practices. Um, and on the other hand, we also work with Jewish leaders, uh, giving them the tools and also some of the connections to mobilize their own communities in support of some of the world's most vulnerable. And so these are the two sides uh, of our work. Um, and we're really proud to work very closely um, with the Society for International Development Israel, which is a strategic partner of ours. Um, and I'll hand it over to Tanya, who can share a little bit more about uh, her work. Thank you. So Sid Israel, um, as Diana mentioned, is the Society for International Development. We're the Israeli branch. Um, there are several branches around the world. Um, we convene uh, Israeli action in the spheres of humanitarian assistance and international development. Um, we're an umbrella organization, um, bringing together um, individuals and organizations NGOs, businesses, private sector, government agencies, academia, um, and consultants. And we focus on, on three main aspects, um, policy and advocacy, cross-sectorial partnerships, and professional development, really creating a professional network in these uh, fields. 
But you guys are not call, calling into the podcast from Israel today. You're actually in Washington, D.C., right? And so I think you're in town for something called the Focal Point Conference. What is it and why is it in D.C. of all places? Um, so I'll share a little bit about that. Uh, Focal Point is Olam's annual conference. This is our eighth annual conference, bringing together uh, Jewish individuals and organizations from across the world uh, to learn together and to share. Uh, we are calling in from this conference where there are over 190 different people here from 12 different countries around the world. And we're here in D.C. because D.C. is a hub for development. Um, and there is a significant concentration of Jewish individuals who are working in this sphere, who are working either um, for NGOs or for large entities uh, like the World Bank or USAID. We're based here in D.C. And so this is uh, a core part of our network. And one of the things that we're excited about is the ability to bring others from around the world in conversation, in person, together with some of their counterparts in D.C. And I would also add that given that some of Olam's work is also about engaging Jewish leaders with this um, important field, uh, D.C., obviously, with a large Jewish community uh, and Jewish communal leaders, both of local and of national organizations, is also an important location for us. I'd love to kind of understand sort of what is the size of, of a group like this? I mean, how many people are we talking about who are working in this space that fall under a Jewish umbrella or Israel umbrella? And do you sort of try to have a collective mandate or is it sort of a lot of individual mandates and just trying to coordinate them as best as possible? Great, great question. I'll share from Olam's side of things. And what's interesting about Olam and uh, the Society for International Development Israel is that we have overlapping partners. And so um, we share some of the same Israeli entities, but the field, if you're taking into account um, Israeli entities doing this work, is actually larger than what's represented in Olam. But if you look at Olam's 71 partner organizations, it's upwards of 3,600 staff members. Um, that are working in 84 different countries around the world. That's data from this past year. In addition to that, um, there are untold numbers, uh, perhaps this is a piece of research we will do in the future, of Jewish individuals who are working in this sphere, but outside of Jewish organizations. In terms of the question of a collective mandate, our, our network is really diverse. So the organizations and individuals are working on lots of different topics from global health to education to agriculture to humanitarian aid and disaster relief and everything in between. Um, I remember in the early years, people kept asking me, what's the common denominator between all the groups? And I said that I think it was more like a family photograph than a common denominator. If you zoom out and you look at least at a, a biological family, not everybody shares the same exact traits, but you look at them and the people somehow belong together and look alike. And I think at least in Olam's network, um, you know, that that family resemblance is that they are all um, either Jewish individuals or Jewish organizations who are doing this work um, that is primarily in partnership with vulnerable non-Jewish communities. And therefore, um, some of the challenges, obstacles, but also opportunities that, that they face are shared because they're raising money um, from the Jewish community, but 
but giving it to, to some of the world's most vulnerable who are not Jewish. And so all of them are engaged in um, a variety of ways in terms of the making the case for why this is something that we as Jews or we as Israelis should be caring about and what does it look like to not only care for our own, which is obviously important, but also be part of addressing some larger global challenges. And is this um, mainly privately funded uh, groups or is it a mix of private and public funds where they might be folks that are contractors for USAID or for the State Department uh, or for Mashav in Israel? I'll share in terms of Olam's network. And then I think um, the Society for International Development is even more diverse in this regard. Uh, Most of Olam's partner organizations are nonprofit um, there are some rare exceptions where there are some social impact businesses. Um, Mashav in Israel is a, a shared partner, both of Ulam and the Society for International Development. Uh, Israel, Mashav is the, the branch within the Israeli foreign ministry that's focused on international development. So that is a governmental institution. But for Ulam, most of our partners are indeed nonprofits. Um, Some of the individual members who are working outside of our partners are indeed working um, for for some of the types of entities, Rich, that you mentioned. I know that um, Tanya's work with the Society for International Development Israel is even more diverse and multi-sector. And maybe, uh, Tanya, if you want to share a little bit more about that. As Diana mentioned, um, I think diversity is uh, is one of the key challenges um, we face in the sense that there are a lot of organizations and a lot of different sectors um, working in our fields, and it's getting them to either partner together um, in the most effective and impactful way, um, offering best practices, as Diana mentioned before. Um, and definitely the issue of funding is one of the main challenges where, um, yeah, we're looking at various private funders, but also getting the government of Israel to fund more operations in development. It's quite different from probably other countries. Um, we have quite a small budget that goes to development work um, and humanitarian assistance um, and getting more private companies and private businesses to work in either the developing world or with local partners and NGOs. And that cross-sectoral collaboration is something that we're really putting an emphasis on, including um, including funding and things that are also in-kind services that they can provide um, or uh, a whole emphasis on ESG um, and, and how private, the private sector has a global responsibility as well. And so what do you guys see as the greatest challenges in this sphere of international development that you're working in? Obviously, um, there's lots of challenges across the board, um, but from your own vantage point, the way you guys do it from a um, from an Israeli perspective, what do you see as the greatest challenges in international development? Um, I would answer that it's, uh, it's the collaboration. Um, it's getting governments and policy and decision makers more involved. Um, um, whether it's on budget, whether it's on uh, legislation that's relevant, whether it's on strategic planning, that's something that's lacking. Um, another challenge is uh, duplicity um, and different agencies working in either the same place or in the same fields and getting them to, uh, to work together, uh, as I mentioned, in order to, to get a, a larger impact. Um, and 
getting everybody in the same room to, to play ball by, by a certain standard as well, professional standard. Al Ann, I think that from the Israeli perspective, um, there have been studies that have been done, which are a bit dated by now, but that look at giving patterns among um, average Israelis and the extent to which Israelis give globally um, as opposed to domestically, regardless of what the cause is, whether it's, uh, you know, ailing Holocaust survivors in Eastern Europe or tsunami victims um, somewhere in Asia. Israelis compared to citizens of other Western countries um, give, give far less um, globally. And the authors of a study that was done um, a little bit over a decade ago tried to guess as to why that would be the case. And what they shared at the time was that uh, Israeli society still sees itself as the beneficiary of the world's largesse, in particular, I think of Jewish communal philanthropy from outside of the world. And we may not have yet reached a state of maturity of seeing ourselves um, as giving to the wider world, which is interesting given the fact that, you know, you had mentioned Mashav, this, this wing on the, the, um, the foreign ministry, you know, that goes back to 1958, just 10 years after the founding of the state of Israel. And so there is a longstanding tradition, um, at least on governmental levels. And now, you know, in the multi-sector work that, that the Society for International Development is is convening in Israel. You know, there is a longstanding tradition of Israel and Israelis um, showing up for people in need around the world. But I think culturally, um, you know, we don't necessarily see that translate um, into into giving. Although it's possible that there was an inflection point in the Ukraine crisis, which is unique in many ways. But I know. Um, from some of my colleagues at the Society for International Development in Israel, that um, the, the private sector in Israel really stepped up in ways that it had never done before, wanting um, to aid those in this particular crisis. So that might be a slight turning point in terms of a more globally minded Israeli citizenry. So that sounds that's a really interesting answer because I always got the impression that that whenever there was a crisis, like there were Israelis there doing good stuff, right? And it, it always seemed to me that like relative to the size of the population, Israel was everywhere when something bad happened to try and ease that suffering. But it sounds like from what you're telling me is that like that's actually may not be the case um, or maybe it is the case externally, but internally, it's not something. It's like a not a tremendous part of Israeli society. It sounds like the yet, government. The government is there. The government's deploying. We just saw one of the you know head of the head of the the rescue team just got honored in Turkey, right? Like uh, got got an award from Erdogan for being there for the earthquake. Okay, so it's actually the. I mean, you do see the government involved in in big. Unfortunately, big disasters. So yes, we did see Israeli missions in Haiti, in Nepal, uh, in Ukraine, and in Turkey. However, there's quite a lot of disasters happening around the world that Israel doesn't send official uh, delegations to, but a lot of the civil society organizations are there. Um, if we're if we're talking about um, hurricanes, if we're talking about uh, lots of natural disasters, if we're talking about the war in Ethiopia, there's, I mean, unfortunately, it's endless. There's many in Malawi, um, there are really endless disaster stricken areas around the world. Um, and as you mentioned, there, there is an Israeli presence, it's just not necessarily the official presence. 
Um, I'll go back to the last question as well and just say that there is this conflict between the internal Israeli problems and how do we contribute to Tikkun uh, Olam and, um, and our responsibility as global citizens as well. But you do see Israelis, as you said, all over the world and first responding and you see Israeli missions there. They're just not necessarily always the official uh, missions. And I think that's fine. I don't think the government of Israel needs to be everywhere. And we don't have the capacity for that as well. And I think that the fact that um, civil society uh, can take an active role and we're getting more and more civil society and uh, uh, to take an, an active role in that, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think uh, it, it can either complement the government's actions or actually just stand on its own in places that the state of Israel doesn't work, just as we saw in Syria, where we don't have obviously official um, relations with Syria, but yet there were uh, there was humanitarian assistance, Israeli humanitarian assistance um, to uh, to the Syrian population. All right, so let me ask you this: so we, you were just talking about how a lot of uh, the government work, the government aid work, is on these sort of like bigger, more high profile mega disasters, but that Israeli civil society is what's doing a lot of the work on stuff maybe you don't hear about all the time. L- how does uh, Israeli foreign policy affect this, right? You know, a lot has changed. Rich will tell you it's about that time in the podcast where he tells you something great that the Trump administration has done for the world. Um, so we could talk about the Abraham Accords and, uh, and and what that's done to reshape the Middle East. But, but in, all, in all seriousness, how does being an Israeli NGO uh, – you know what are the what are the complications that come with that? Given Israel's isolation sometimes in the region and, and countries like Indonesia doing stuff that are not so great, or even in Turkey, right? When the Israeli team that went after the earthquake had to be pulled out after some period of time because uh, nobody could guarantee their safety. There's a lot of issues there at stake, whether it's security relation related issues or uh, policy or. Uh, political uh, topics. However, I don't think that stops um, NGOs from continuing to operate. Um, in Turkey, we had 16 NGOs operating on the ground, um, many times with local partners. And I think that's what makes the difference. Um, and as I mentioned, Israeli NGOs also operate in countries where we don't necessarily have diplomatic relations, but they operate because we're needed there. So whether it was um, evacuating Afghans um, after the U.S. Um, left Afghanistan and Israel helping um, evacuate refugees, or as I mentioned, the Good Neighbor um, operation in Syria, these are countries that Israel doesn't obviously have official relations with, but we're still there because we're needed on the ground. So it's it's tricky, of course, and, and all the NGOs have to take responsibility for themselves, but in somewhat of a coordination with government agencies, but they're still there because they're needed. Uh, I have a little bit of a follow-up question on that, and, and it goes to the core question of why you need sort of a Jewish international development humanitarian assistance umbrella group, right? Like, you, you I imagine you already go to all the conferences of all the other types of NGOs that are working in the same space, whether they're Jewish or non-Jewish, uh, large and small, that have the same general functional 
challenges, opportunities, uh, spaces where, where they're looking. I'm sure when you're on the ground, you're, you're working with all kinds of different groups as well that are, that are in various spaces. Is this one of the reasons why you feel the need to bring Jewish organizations together? Are there unique challenges or unique places where only a Jewish organization would have that kind of issue to discuss and deconflict and, and get best practices on? So I think it's on several levels. Um, one level is that there are common challenges, um, as I alluded to earlier, in terms of the organizations that identify as Jewish um, and doing this work. And parenthetically, you know, most of the Israeli organizations do not necessarily identify as Jewish organizations doing this work. They either identify as Israeli or or just plain humanitarian organizations. But for the Jewish organizations who are doing this work. Um, a lot of them are, at least in part, reliant on Jewish philanthropy. Um, they have, you know, in part, Jewish staff. Um, for some of them, they are uh, engaged deeply in um, some Jewish education work, drawing upon texts from our own tradition that deal with issues of global responsibility. And so they are all um, face common challenges that they're not um, able to access or discuss in other international development um, forums. I think um, if you take it another level, for many of the Jewish organizations, they would also like to see um, the types of issues that we talk about um, within Olam's network or within the Society for International Development's network be more significant on the radar screen of um, Jewish communal priorities. Um, I think if we look at the overarching sort of arc uh, of Jewish history, um, while there there's definitely lots of challenges internally and externally, um, you know, I, I compare the world that I inhabit to the world of my own grandparents, um, you know, one set of Holocaust survivors on the other, another set that grew up in the Depression um, era in the United States, you know, our community is one that currently has unprecedented resources with the birth of a sovereign state of Israel, with, um, you know, uh, large and established Jewish communities around the world. And so, you know, what does it look like for Jewish communities to be playing uh, a greater role alongside other, you know, entities um, in terms of dealing with the world's uh, largest challenges? And that, I think, is a common conversation um, that our partners are not finding in other spaces. And I would say in terms of the Jewish individuals who are doing this work, that's been one of the most surprising or interesting things for us. They have ample opportunities to be looking um, for professional development, um, to be speaking to practitioners about the core of their work. But they have very few opportunities where they can bring their full selves. Um, their professional and personal commitments, as well as um, the fact that they are Jewish and to be able to talk about that. Uh, at our conference just earlier today, we had a session that was called Being a Jew in a Non-Jewish Field, in which you had participants um, from Israel, the United States, Argentina, Ukraine, Mexico, etc., talking about what does it look like to be in a an NGO that's working in international development and often be the sole Jewish individual or the sole Israeli. Um, and by dint of that are called upon to represent the Jewish people and or Israeli governmental policy and some of the unique challenges um, 
you know, what are some of the funny events that have happened as a result in, in their lives, but also, you know, how have they dealt with challenging conversations related to anti-Semitism that they've experienced or being put in the position of, of trying to represent the Jewish people or Israel writ large. So there are very few spaces, either in the international development community or in the Jewish community, where they can be wedding both of those conversations. Can I ask you a follow-up about that? Because you know, we've talked on this podcast a lot about the ESG world and and sort of folks in the, the BDS movement kind of co-opting, at least to some extent, the ESG world and like the like the green industry and like um, all these ratings agencies. How how do you kind of walk that path among other international aid groups who maybe don't necessarily always share pro-Israel or or neutral Israel policies and politics when you're out there doing the work with these organizations uh, in the field? That's you know it's all righteous work, but but how do you not let the politics of the day domestically uh, with Iran or the Palestinians, whatever, or even judicial reform, right? And like, how do you not let that get in the way when you're doing work with, you know, all these other groups from across the world? I have an example from Ulam's own work. Um, and I'm sure that a bunch of our partners also face this as well. But um, about two years ago, when um, vaccine rollout for COVID vaccine started in uh, the countries in which Olam um, focuses most in terms of our Jewish leadership engagement work, so namely Israel, the United States, and the UK, and rollout was pretty significant, and whoever wanted an access to COVID vaccine was able to do so. And there were many countries around the world in which even healthcare workers or particularly vulnerable populations, the elderly people who were infirm, were not able to access that. It was clear to me that I wanted um, to somehow get involved, and I wasn't sure exactly how. Um, and uh, early on, a campaign sort of fell into our lap in the British Jewish community, um, where British leadership of the Jewish community had joined forces with other faith communities um, as part of a larger campaign that UNICEF in the UK was was leading that was a crowdfunding campaign that would enable people to um, give small donations that would go to larger efforts for vaccine access for those who wished um, to do so. And then we wanted to bring it to the U.S. And, um, you know, as we were bringing it to the U.S., Olam actually uh, prized itself, both in terms of our partners and in terms of um, others who are involved in our community, people span the political spectrum. Um, and uh, there were questions in terms of UNICEF's uh, history vis-a-vis -vis Israel, um, some of their work in um, Gaza and the West Bank, etc. Uh, but it was really clear to me that this was a global issue that the Jewish community needed to be involved in. And so the way that we went about doing this was by building deep relationship. In fact, um, someone from the UNICEF USA team who is not Jewish is at our conference at this very moment because we spent about a year plus building a deep relationship and having very transparent and open conversations. And um, I feel comfortable sharing this because I've shared this in the past and they know that I've shared this. There were points in time where they the staff that we were interacting with on the global vaccine equity campaign 
did some digging and research in terms of UNICEF's own track record in Israel and the region. And because we had built a deep relationship with them, we're willing to be transparent about things that, um, you know, they knew could turn off some of um, the more, let's say, pro-Israel elements um, within within the Jewish community. And I I give them a lot of credit for being open and honest with us about sharing the full picture of their history um, for, you know, the, you know, since Israel's inception. Um, And it's and it's because of that that we were able to have conversations with those in our community and explain that this was a partnership that would enable the Jewish community to sit around a global table at a key moment. Um, But also sharing, you know, what does it look like to, to work with an entity um, that at least for some pockets of the Jewish community, uh, raised red flags. And so for us, I think the key was finding a common issue area, being in deep and ongoing conversation. I cannot even tell you how many, um, meetings over, you know, a really long period of time to build that relationship and also real honesty on both sides in which I was able to share some of the sensitivities um, from members of different parts of the Jewish community and in which they in turn were able to do that. And I would also say that, um, you know, one of the nice things as a result, which was not the goal of this, is that we built some great relationships with um, Jewish members of staff in the UNICEF team. UNICEF also has a, an office in, uh, has a, a branch in Israel um, and UNICEF does great work partnering with some of our partners. And for some of those Jewish individuals working at UNICEF, they, um, you know, this was an opportunity once again for them to bridge different parts of their identity. So that's how we, on um, an Olam organizational level, navigated some of those questions. I'll just add, if I if I can, um, we don't necessarily deal with BDS per se, but definitely internal politics issues could influence um, how we work, and it's definitely some dilemmas that we have as an umbrella organization representing Israeli action. We're nonpartisan, and most of our organizations, if not all of them, are nonpartisan. Um, and it's sometimes challenging to, to, to keep it that way. Um, uh, you could agree or disagree with any policy relating to either the Israeli government or other governments that we might work with, specifically, obviously, the Israeli government as we represent Israeli action. Um, and, and it's a challenge whether or not we relate to, to certain policies. Um, I, think, I think keeping keeping it as a professional community is something that we really strive for and something that we that we advocate. So we, we, we put an emphasis on, on that and I haven't, from my perspective, I haven't uh, I haven't come across um, any organizations that, that have said they don't want to work or they wouldn't work with Israeli organizations, especially in times of crisis, because of Israeli policy. And I think that's what's that's what that's why we need to strengthen also uh, civil society in that sense. That it doesn't necessarily have to do with a specific policy. It's about the action on the ground and helping people on the ground. One of the historical, interesting foreign policy objectives unfulfilled goes back to Golda Meir and this idea of really focusing development work in Africa as a way of both doing good, but also building 
real partnerships, deep relationships for the state of Israel with African states. Uh, in in you know, U- U.S. gives billions of dollars in development assistance, right, through USAID spread throughout Africa. And, and for most Americans, it's something very far away. For Israel, it's it's the backyard continent, right? It's it's literally their backyard. And it, it, it's it's more natural for Israel to be a partner uh, and and involved in investing in development work and building those relationships, but also with great potential geopolitical benefits as well. Sort of an unfulfilled vision, a lot of talk over several years of how Netanyahu has tried to resurrect that that vision, quietly focusing on on work in Africa. I understand the geopolitics of it, you know, at the 30,000 foot level, we've seen successes, failures here and there, outreach to the African Union, Sudan was a success story until it, until it wasn't, uh, I don't think because of anything Israel did. Uh, but I'm wondering, on from your perspective, working with the groups on the ground, working, seeing the work that's being done uh, on the African continent by Jewish or Israeli groups, what's the state of play today? What, what is what is the status of that sort of outreach, that vision that Goldmeyer had? Is it being fulfilled? Is it a story that is still untold in your view? It hasn't been fulfilled um, enough. Um, I think there's definitely a lot more potential um, that hasn't yet been uh, um, implemented. Um, there was huge effort by the Israeli government um, to encourage the private sector and businesses to work um, in in Africa, in the African continent, um, really opening up that market. Um, and we partnered with uh, the Ministry of Economy on this. Um, so SID Israel really held quite quite a lot of events showcasing how to work with um, various uh, states in Africa. Obviously, each one has their own characteristics and own own interest, and and a specific country might have a focus on water or energy, um, uh, etc. So we really held lots of uh, meetings for Israeli businesses on on how to best uh, work in the African continent. I think the focus is today, as I mentioned, how do we connect with the private sector who's still interested in tapping into this um, unfulfilled market with local partners and with the other, with NGOs on the ground, maybe with... um, local governments, if possible, as well. So also the Israeli embassy and um, the local uh, ministries, relevant ministries, really, obviously, each case and in each country, it's a different dynamic. Uh, Obviously, as you said, also politics comes into play here. um, And different countries have different political dynamic situations, which can be uh, altered in, in a second as well. But I think that Today, really, we stand in seeing how do we create these partnerships which are long-lasting um, and efficient for the local communities and not just as, as, as one-time investments or as specific missions, but looking at the longer term um, of goals, which could be brought back and really effective and efficient for Israel as well. Uh, economically, politically, uh, diplomatically, and morally, too. Just understanding the breadth of the work the groups uh, in your coalition are engaged in, your own groups, your partner organizations, Jewish, but also Israeli, and the lack of 
real understanding permeated throughout, you know, the American public, the global public of how much is going on. Uh, clearly a lot of potential left on the table that, that you're trying to fulfill, but already a lot going on in so many countries, so many places. It's always frustrating, at least to me, that Israel never gets credit for the amount of good stuff that's going on around the world, that Israelis don't get credit, that, that the Jewish community doesn't get credit. And, and all people think of is bad things, violence, the Palestinian conflict, other issues like that. Does it frustrate you? Does it frustrate your partners? Is it, a, is it a PR issue? Is it because you're focused on the work and not on getting credit for it? Should, should there be a little bit more of people who work on helping you and your partners get more credit? Of course, always. Um, but most of the organizations are quite small. Um, and so they have to pick and choose where they put their efforts, um, whether it's working on the ground, whether it's fundraising, whether it's capacity building, um, or whether it's PR. Some of what we're doing in the Society for International Development is helping with raising awareness, raising public awareness as well. So it's not just about the work that I do as an umbrella organization, but the work that all our individual partners do as well. Um, whether, again, whether it's an emergency or on an ongoing basis through their development work. Um, and it's really putting an emphasis both internally within Israel, but also globally. So the, that their important work does get recognition. But any assistance and anybody who wants to, to help out with that is, uh, is always welcome. It's always a bracha. I'll just add that I think in, um, in the American Jewish community, um, people often fall into one of two categories when it comes to this work. Um, the cynics view this work as whitewashing, uh, basically a distraction from other um, issues in Israeli society uh, domestically. But I think even the advocates often see it as window dressing meaning a nice story, a nice headline, but not core to Israel's identity. And so I think the message that I would have is for those who, um, you know, see this work um, and are proud of this work, it's not just to see this as window dressing, like a nice thing that Israel does, a headline here or there, but actually something that's core to Israel's identity dating back to Golda Meir in the early days. And I think part of the way to change that sort of narrative is for people to have a greater understanding of the work that's being done. So it's this virtuous circle where you need more stories out there so people can understand that this is core to what Israeli, uh, what Israeli society is and what Israel is in the world. So we do something called the lightning round, where we ask a couple questions to kind of get a little bit better sense of who you are as people. Um, so we have a couple um, that we've come up with. So the first one is, uh, what is your favorite Israeli wine? There's so many. Um, in all honesty, I used to work with uh, bringing delegations of decision makers to Israel, and I would end every delegation with a visit to a winery. So I got to taste and go to, to, to many wineries. And I think that, uh, yeah, we're, we're, it's underrated the amount of good wine that we have in Israel. Did I evade that right, question? So that's a non-answer answer. <laughs> yeah. No, that was, that was great. You're going to be prime minister one day. Diono, give us a straight answer. Give us the straight talk express, as John McCain used to say. The straight answer that's authentic to me? 
Yeah. We're, I'm a grape juice drinking family all the way. Um, okay. So I wish I could give you a good answer. Um, but anyone who knows me knows that I am a total lightweight. <laughs> I was going to say that uh, there's a great region, which is uh, maybe underappreciated, which is in the Judean Hills um, around Jerusalem. And there's a few there. There's Flam and Castel and Bravdo and Emekaila. Um, so there you go. Castel's very good. Uh, what is your favorite Hebrew language bad TV? Like guilty pleasure TV. Hebrew language. Wow. Okay. Um, actually, Hebrew language TV is not bad TV. Not that all Israeli TV is bad TV, but I think to an American audience, from what we see, it's largely like in the quotes bad TV, which is addictive and you have to keep watching, but we would file it under bad TV. Yeah, exactly. My husband and I love MasterChef. We are addicted to MasterChef, the Israeli version. Um, we try to make the recipes at home. There's Kupa Rashit, which is, um, it's a sitcom about an Israeli supermarket. It's actually, it's it's hilarious. It's not bad TV at all. Um, but yeah, we watch that. One more question, and that is, of all the places that you've worked in the world or your partners work in the world, what is like the craziest place that no one would ever believe that a Jewish international development organization is working and what are they doing there? Um, there's so many places, as I mentioned, Syria. I don't think anybody would have thought that Israelis or Jews work and help Syrian children, mothers, families um, with essential goods um, and even provide first aid. Do you want to answer, or is Syria your answer too? Uh, I don't know something. I mean, I don't know if Syria is my answer too, but um, I, I mean, there there are. This is supposed to be short, right? Yeah, but it could be like Palau. You could just be like, "Did you know we're in Palau?" I mean, like, I, ran, no, I, I didn't ran, know you're in Palau. I'd love, I, I'd love I ran to go into, to Palau. There's some like Uyghurs that got a Gitmo in Palau, so I don't know if I really <laughs> want to be there. But what are you doing in Palau? Like, there's got to be somewhere. Like, I mean, I mean, Rich, I ran into after the hurricanes in 2017. I ran into Israel in Puerto Rico. That's like you know not the place you would necessarily yeah, expect like, in Israel. Yeah. Why not? Of course I would. They go to where the disasters are. Why wouldn't they? Be so I mean, if if that's what we're talking about, I would say the person who um, at our last in-person conference came the farthest was someone who was Israel's representative in Vanuatu, which is an island nation far away. Um, From and Survivor, Survivor. I know Vanuatu. Continues to do work um, in Vanuatu. So um, there are Israeli individuals and organizations in lots of places around the world. I'm going to share with our listeners just a little bit my great story with the government of Vanuatu that was caught flagging Iranian ships over 10 years ago. And we cracked down on Vanuatu's flagging of illicit Iranian ships. So I kudos to whoever is out there for Israel and Vanuatu. My Palau answer was not so crazy all of a sudden. There you go. <laughs> Diona, Tanya, thank you so much for joining us on the pod today. It's been great. And, and Hatzlacha on all the work you guys are doing. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Wow. Really eye-opening, enlightening stuff. Rich, I think you have a story here, though, to get on your Vanuatu story, right? Vanuatu, Vanuatu. Wasn't that uh, one of the seasons of Survivor? Wasn't that- uh, It's possible. They, was yeah, it Palau I think, or was it Vanuatu? 
I think they had a season in both. I think they had a season. That's in both. possible. And and a shout out to the Marshall Islands. We love the Marshall Islands as well. Uh, but uh, it takes me back to my Senate days as I was working for Senator Kirk. We were cracking down on Iranian ships that were being flagged out and had different registries trying to evade U.S. sanctions and European sanctions, moving their cargoes around. We see the same things happen today. But at the time, we were playing whack-a-mole because we hadn't really upgraded to the maximum type sanctions that we have today. Uh, And as part of that whack-a-mole, there was all all this great research and reports coming out from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, identifying what what flag was being used, what registry. And Vanuatu kept popping as this country of concern that was letting its flag be used, clearly quite intentionally, by the Iranians to evade sanctions. And so I remember calling. I was like, okay, there must be an ambassador of Vanuatu. Well, they have like a shared office in New York where – the U.S. ambassador is the is also like the ambassador to the U.N. It's like this one person that may have expanded since then, but at the time, that's how it was. I found the number in New York, called the mission. Somebody picks up, you know, like just saying hello. And it's like, is this is this like a real place? Like, you know, like, hello, I'm looking for the ambassador of Vanuatu. This is Rich Goldberg calling from Senator Mark Kirk's office. And the person says, please hold, you know, as if they're trying to get somebody, then comes back on the line same, same person, person, same person oh, that's saying, awesome. hello, this is the ambassador. <laughs> it's like you're the only person who works here, clearly, or something. Or everybody's on a lunch break for, for five months. And and I start telling him, like, oh, you know, calling from the U.S. Senate. We've identified your country as a problem, and we want to talk to you about it, and we're going to send you a letter, and we're, you know, we're going to think about legislation. And the person's like, oh, Oh, really? Oh, wow. Okay. Thank you for calling. I will communicate this uh, to my government. And that was it. I mean, they actually did start pulling the flags. And, you know, Treasury and the State Department got involved as well with with some of Congress, you know, uh, rustling it up. But uh, just a funny, funny diplomatic type story of, of Washington, New York, foreign policy. So glad that Vanuatu came up in this episode. I've I've talked about this Vanuatu story a little too much. Go on, Jerry. (laughs) That's okay. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Jewish Insiders Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.